But I was thinking about, you know, this, this, this story, and it was really brilliantly put together by Mel Gibson, and it stars Andrew Garfield, and, and um, it's a story about a man named Desmond Doss. True story. Desmond Doss. So I was looking around. This is him on the screen behind me. Desmond Doss is credited with saving 75 soldiers during one of the bloodiest battles of World War II in the Pacific. And I was reading a little bit about him, and in his humility, he said that he probably thought it was somewhere around 50, but most of the men uh, in his unit said it was closer to 100. And so 75 is kind of this number that they landed on that they know for sure. And um, I found this little NPR piece, and I wanted to read it to you for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story. He saved 75 soldiers in one of the bloodiest battles in the Pacific. He did it without carrying a weapon. The battle at Hacksaw Ridge on the island of Okinawa was a close combat fight with heavy weaponry. Thousands of American and Japanese soldiers were killed, and the fact that Doss survived the battle and saved so many lives has confounded and awed those who know his story. And of course, he's the subject of this film, but he was, so he was a quiet and skinny kid from Lynchburg, Virginia. Doss was a Seventh-day Adventist who wouldn't touch a weapon or work on the Sabbath. He enlisted in the army as a combat medic because he believed in the cause, but had vowed not to kill. The army wanted nothing to do with him. He just didn't fit into the army's model of what a good soldier would be, says Terry Benedict, who made a documentary about Doss called The Conscientious Ob Objector. The army made Doss's life hell during training. It started out as harassment and then it became abusive, Benedict says. He interviewed several World War II veterans who were in Doss's battalion. They considered him a pest, questioned his sincerity, and threw shoes at him while he prayed. They just saw him as a slacker, the filmmaker says. Someone who shouldn't have been allowed in the army and somebody who was their weakest link in the chain. Doss's commanding officer, Captain Jack Glover, tried to get him transferred. In the documentary, Glover says, Doss told him, don't ever doubt my courage because I will be right by your side saving life while you take life. Glover's response you're not going to be my, by my side if you don't have a gun. But hard as they tried, the army couldn't force Doss to use a weapon. A 1940 law allowed conscientious objectors to serve the war effort in non-combat positions. So Doss went with his company as a medic to the Pacific Theater. And at Okinawa in the spring of 1945, Doss's company faced a grueling task climb a steep, jagged ridge, sometimes called Hacksaw Ridge, to a plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers were waiting for them. The terrain was treacherous. It was full of caves and holes, and the Japanese were dug in underground, says Mel Gibson, who recreated the battle in the movie. The Japanese called it the Reign of Steel because there was so much iron flying around. And under a barrage of gunfire and explosion, Doss crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. He dragged several severely injured men to the edge of the ridge, tied a rope around their bodies, and lowered them down to other medics below. In Benedict's documentary, Doss says, I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, please help me get one more. 
Veteran Carl Bentley, who was also at Hacksaw Ridge, says in the documentary, it's as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Doss saved 75 men, including his captain, Jack Glover, over a 12-hour period. The same soldiers who had shamed him now praised him. He was one of the bravest persons alive, Glover says in the documentary. And then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing. President Harry Truman awarded Doss the Medal of Honor in 1945, and, and Doss died in 2006. I want you to think about what this man did. And I want you to imagine in your mind what he might have been thinking to himself as a young man watching people sign up to go to war. And no matter what you think about war, I want you to imagine that the idea of Doss's question. What if I could fight the enemy without killing anyone? That's a pretty profound question as a young man. What if I could save lives without ever holding a gun? What if I could scale the cliff and rescue a bunch of guys up here? I wonder if I could do that. I, as you imagine what he was thinking, I wonder if he ever thought, what if I don't? What if I just don't? All those men would have died. Doss was the only one who was thinking differently. <laughs> he was the only one who was imagining a different way of rescuing he was the only one who imagined himself rescuing one person at a time and had the faith and the courage to do it. I want to suggest to you that as Christians, so often we don't do what we're asked to do by God the way he wants us to do it. We're stuck in the ideas of the world. We don't, we don't think that Certain things are possible because we're stuck in the paradigm of our culture. But what if? We've been reading this passage every week, so I'm gonna read it again. And I wanna pray over it before I read it. We're gonna read two long passages today. And so let's pray. Father, would you just speak to our hearts and would you illuminate our minds and would you help us to, to think the way you think and to somehow pattern our lives after what you've given us in your word. Give us grace to obey in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 58 is our passage and it's Isaiah and he's speaking to God's people and he's, this is a, a prophecy, a prophetic message from God to God's people and he says, shout a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout, tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law abiding, God honoring. They ask me what's the right thing to do and love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do, you, why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your, day, uh, on your fast days is profit. 
You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of day, a fast day that I'm after? A day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, and I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor, Jacob. Yes, God says so. Amen. I've read that three weeks in a row and every time I read it, I get a little more. Like it gets a little deeper, right? Like that's a hard passage to get deep in here. But what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is how salvation is more than a get out of jail free card. It's more than praying a prayer. Oh, I prayed the prayer. I got a get out of jail free card. It's, it's more than just sort of seeing salvation as forgiveness of your sins and seeing salvation as a much greater picture. Seeing the gospel, which means good news. The gospel, which means something, something more to your life, not just about you, but about the world about what's going on around you, about what's going on around me, what's happening around us. If we look at the scriptures, we see about 2,000 verses that describe what's supposed to be going on here with God's people, how we're supposed to be caring for those in need, how we're supposed to be feeding the poor, how we're supposed to be helping those who are down and out, who are, who are in trouble, those who are in prison, and those who need help. There's about 2,000 scriptures that describe how the kingdom of God comes to planet Earth. If you take it, if you cut out those 2,000 scriptures of the Bible, the Bible barely holds together. The gospel is so much bigger. The kingdom of God, which Jesus came to preach and demonstrate is intended to change and to challenge 
everything in our fallen world, in the here, in the now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And when he did, he said, when you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What well, simply means, God, what are you doing here and how can I cooperate? Let your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means heaven coming to earth now, not later, not some future distant idea. It's not about us leaving the world. It's about the kingdom coming here. Kingdom of God is meant to actually redeem the world in the here and now. And so with this in mind, I want to ask you, what does God expect of you and me? What is the Christian faith really about? Is, is it about going to church every Sunday? Is, is it about uh, studying his word? Is it about saying grace before meals? Is it, is it about um, avoiding? <laughs> Here it is. It's about avoiding the worst sins. That's what lots of people think that Christianity is about. It's about not doing the bad things. It's about, is it about praying? Is it about believing? Is it about self-denial? Is this what the Christian life is all about or is there something more? Jesus, I think, suggested something more in Luke 6, 24. Luke 6, 24, this is another big passage, but I want you to read it with me. It's a little warm in here, but poke your neighbor and say, stay away, come on, it's okay, it's okay. Luke 6, 24, here's what Jesus said, and I'm gonna read from the Message Bible again because sometimes we just need like a different point of view Right, a, a little different wording. And the Message Bible is a paraphrase that's translated through one man, Eugene Peterson, but it, is, it can really help open our eyes. Here it is in verse 24, Jesus said, but it's trouble ahead if you think you have made it. If you think you have it made, it says, what you have is all you'll ever get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met and you're going to meet it. There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. He's talking to God's people, the Jewish people, and how many scoundrel preachers are in their past. He says, your task is to be true, not popular. To you who are ready for the truth, I say this, love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff, live generously. Here is a simple rule of thumb for your behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. If you only love the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you only help those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden-variety sinners do that. If you only give 
for what you hope to get out of it, do you think that's charity? The stingiest of pawnbrokers does that. I tell you, love your enemies, help and give without expecting a return. You'll never, I promise, forget, regret it. You'll never regret it, he says. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives toward us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind. You be kind. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. You'll find a lot, life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting is the way. Generosity begets generosity. (sighs) That is another really powerful passage, and I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, give it all away. Give it all away. God is asking us for a total life commitment, a total life commitment from those who would be his followers. Luke 14, it says this, if you want to be my followers, you must love me more than you than you, your own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, more than your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple and you cannot be my disciple if you do not carry your cross and follow me. See, God asks for everything. I think, as I read this verse, I think about my own kids. I'm thinking about, I've, Amy and I, we have five kids, right? Age 22 to 10. As they've been growing up, it's been like a nightmare, it is, it, is like, it is like we're trying to teach them how to give themselves to each other and not to hate each other. But we went through many, many years. We're still in some of the tail end years where the mindset is, that's mine. You can't have it. The, the, the mindset is selfishness. It's how much can I get? It's how much can I take? And I don't, I don't want to give to you. And you're not, this is not yours, right? This is like, this, this thing goes on in our house and we're like working on them. I remember like teaching my kids how to brush their teeth, right? I teach them every morning, every night. Here's how you do it. Here's how it goes. Here's the brushes. Brush your teeth. Okay. And then they come to me at night and they say, we say, did you brush your teeth? Yeah. Let me smell. It's a smell test. And, they can, and if, they, if they breathe in our face, and I can smell pepperoni pizza, it's, it's over. You're going back to the bathroom, and then I take them back to the bathroom, and then you go all the way to the bathroom, and then I'm like, okay, let me see. And then there's like jelly right there. I'm like, what in the world? Did you even, I mean, you don't understand. And then I'll teach them. I'm like, okay, see, here's how you do it. Feel that? Feel that? Okay, that's good. Way back in the back. All right, so you have to model for them, right? Over and over again. You can't just tell them what to do. And I've, I mean, you've heard me say this before. I threaten them with, with really bad, um, um, really bad uh, gum disease or with cavities. I couldn't think of the word cavities. I threaten them with cavities or I can threaten them with the big giant needle at the dentist's office where they're going to have to go and get a needle in their gums. But that's not good enough. They still show up right before bed did you brush your teeth? Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to show them. And for a while, I thought they were just not smart children. 
because I just had to do it over and over and over and over again. And then I realized this is how God sees us. This is how God sees us. Like, but, but without all the frustration, because he already knows. <laughs> he already knows who we are. He knows, as the Bible says, that we are made of dust. And so he doesn't get all stressed out like Amy and I do about how our kids are doing and whether or not they're going to be loving people and good humans in this world. <laughs> but, they, but, but God is working with us and calling us to himself to, to take on his values, to take on his ideas, to take on with him the challenges of this world. 2 Corinthians 5.20, you know what it says? It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Think about that. God is, God is choosing you to be his representative. I know, what a risk. What a risk. You're his representative. You're how people see who he is. As unlikely as it might seem, God chose you to be this person who is going to proclaim the good news, who's going to be the good news, who's going to change the world. What if you could change the world? Would you? What if you could? I have three questions for you today. Three questions for you, and I want you to think about them, all right? They're in your message notes. The first question is, do you see your faith as a, simply a private decision? Do you see it simply as a private decision? If you do, you're not likely to share it. Our culture today is, is wrestling with an idea about religion and whether or not it can be shared in the public square which is sad because it's one of our bedrock principles of the Constitution, the free expression of religion, without government sort of intrusion or, or, or the government forcing anyone to um, a, the, a government religion on the people. So the free exercise of religion, no matter what your religion is, but if you see your faith as only a private decision, you're not really grasping the, the bigness of Christianity, of, of, of a relationship with God. You're not living out the whole gospel because God never intended for us to live out our faith privately. He never intended for us to live out our faith privately. Here's what Jude says in verse 20. Jude 20 says, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life, uh, eternal life and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. I want you to underline the words, making a difference, right there. Circle that little phrase in your message notes. The Bible describes that we're called to make a difference in the world. Now, I understand that for many, just saying those words, there's a reaction like, who, me? Like, how am I gonna make a difference in this world? I could never do that. Immediately, we think of all the reasons why we can't. I'm too short, I'm too shy, I don't have that many talents. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I can make a difference. I, I don't have what I need. But notice what God doesn't say. He never says through the scripture that if you have enough money, then you can, then you can help me. God never says if you have lots of money. He never says if you have lots of talents and abilities. He never says if you have, he never says if you have lots of time on your hands, then you can really be helpful. Yeah. Every 
biblical character you can see has deep flaws inherent in their personality, in their history. God wants all of us to come to him and he has a purpose. He wants us to make a difference in this world. Certainly the 21st century is in need of help, <laughs> a need of change. It's, it's hard to read the headlines each day without a growing sense of alarm and just a, a, a cursory view of all these headlines about terrorism, ethnic and religious tension, wars and conflicts, widespread hunger, poverty, global economic turmoil, brutal dictators, corrupt governments, massive natural disasters, climate change, nuclear intimidations, child trafficking and slavery. It's everywhere. These are the headlines. And sadly for most of us, the problems of our world, the world's problems just seem too big for us. We just, they just seem too big and too difficult. I, can't, I don't, can't wrap my arms around that. So it's so much easier to retreat from all these problems than to try to do something about them. But what does God expect us to do? As Christians, are we really given the option of turning away the world's problems? Here's what James said. James 2.18 says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. James was making a case that your faith must have an outworking. There's something that comes out of you. In other words, he was saying, make your faith public. It's got to show up. I say this from a very biased perspective because I believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes would not perish, would not die, but would have eternal life. So doesn't it, doesn't it make sense that maybe I would need to love the planet as much as God loves the planet, that I would love people like he loves them. He thinks they're so valuable that, he's, that Jesus was willing to die. Jesus was willing to die for this troubled planet. Maybe I should care about it too. Maybe I should care about these people as well, which leads us to our second question. Number two, do you see the gospel as a solution for society's ills? Do you see the gospel as a solution to society's ills? If so, how? Write that down right in your notes. How? How do I see it as the solution? Does your gospel, the way you see the good news, translate to your daily life and routine? The gospel is not simply about you having a good routine of a quiet time. <laughs> There's more. I want you to meet with Jesus every day. I would love for you to set aside time every morning for you to read the scriptures and pray. I love that, but that's not the end goal. That little tiny box is just like a little beginning. Here's the problem. So often in our culture, Christians are interested, they're concerned about different problems than the culture is concerned about. So the culture is concerned about a set of problems, but we don't really address that. We just address these other problems that we're interested in. Here's an example. The culture, society might be concerned about the environment, racism, oppression, and poverty. But instead, as Christians, Historically, over the 20th century, we've been really concerned about spirituality, sexuality, and social norms. 
we're concerned about people's spiritual lives and we're concerned seemingly too much about their sexual practices. When oppression and poverty and racism is all around us, listen, you and I, there's something to be said for us as the people, the people of God who come from any background, any social strata, any history, all failures and people who have succeeded. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what's in your past or what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. God invites you to a family of believers, a family, his family that follow Christ. We should never tolerate any kind of subtle or subversive racism of any kind. But we don't really work on that very well. We may not talk about it enough. People in poverty, it's one of the things we just, we're not that concerned about it. Now, so here's what I, here's what I wanna suggest to you, right? Every problem is spiritual. Every problem is spiritual. So getting so you got so there's roots to every spiritual problem. The root of every issue, the root of every every struggle in our culture has a spiritual root. But getting to the spiritual root often means lots of digging in the mud. What am I saying? I'm saying sometimes you can't get to that spiritual root unless you're willing to work with some of the other things around the root. And sometimes that takes a long time to dig down to the root of the problem the root of the problem in a person's life or the root of the problem in a culture. It takes time, it takes energy, but you gotta be com convicted and convinced that this is what we must do as God's people. If my personal faith in Jesus has no positive outward expression, then my faith has an enormous gaping hole in it. It's getting really quiet in this Methodist church here. Do you remember, do you remember the song that Johnny Cash sang? It was called No Earthly Good. No Earthly Good. If you know, if you know that song, you're either a Johnny Cash fan or you're really old. <laughs> but here's, here's, I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you. And I want you, this to like sink in. He said, come here, me good brothers. Come here, one and all. Don't brag about standing or you'll surely fall. You're shining your light, yes, and shine it you should. But you're so heavenly minded and you're no earthly good. No earthly good, you are no earthly good. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You're shining your light, yes, and shine it you should. But you're so heavenly minded and you're no earthly good. That's crazy. That's an amazing song. Second verse, come here. Come hear me, good sisters. You're the salt of the earth. If your salt isn't satis uh, sorry, sorry, if your salt isn't salted, then what is it worth? You could give someone a cool drink if you would, but you're so heavenly minded and you're no earthly good. No earthly good, you are no you get the idea. <laughs> Third verse, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There are hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood, so heavenly minded and you're no earthly good. No earthly good. You are no earthly good. Man, I don't want to be that kind of people. 
I don't want to be those kind of people. I don't want to be that kind of person. See, embracing the gospel that was proclaimed by Jesus is so much more than just a private transaction between God and us. The gospel itself was born of God's vision of a changed people and a changed culture, challenging, transforming the prevailing values and practices of our world. And so as followers of Jesus, God challenges us to embrace radically different standards from that of the world. Things like love your neighbor as yourself. Things like love our enemies. Things like forgive those who have wronged us. Like lift up the poor and the downtrodden. Share what we have with those who have little. Live lives of sacrifice. As a result, our lives will have an effect on the world around us. And just like light has an effect in darkness, here's, in fact, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, I think it's pretty, God is pretty insistent that we're to bring his light, we're to bring his love, and we're to bring his healing to the world because light dispels the darkness, truth dispels falsehood, goodness reverses evil. That's what God has asked us to be in the world in which we live. And I want to suggest to you an idea that I want you to take from here on this day. I want you to think about the idea of responding in the opposite spirit. You can write that in the side of your notes. I, I, it's, not a, it's not a line. Responding in the opposite spirit. What does that mean? That means when you meet somebody who's really angry at you, what do you do? You get angry and win? No. Somebody really angry, you meet it with gentleness. Because Proverbs says a gentle answer turns away wrath. When someone really has a certain hatred towards you, you know what? You know what the people of God are supposed to do? They're supposed to treat people with kindness. See, it's the opposite spirit. It's like Desmond Doss never touching a gun and saving people's lives. It's not conventional. It's not common. It is a different paradigm but it's what God has called us to do. It is answering people in the opposite spirit. People who are deceitful, you answer them with innocence. People who are lying to you, you answer with the truth, with honesty. When people are selfish with you, you love them. It's also called parenting. (laughs) Right? This is what parenting is. You're, you're, You're dealing with selfishness by loving them. Make no mistake, this is not easy stuff. For centuries, Christians have struggled to live differently in a world that rejects their values and mocks their beliefs. The temptations for every generation of Christians to retreat from the world, to keep our faith private. Here's what G.K. Chesterton said. He was an English journalist in the 1800s. He said it this way. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And yet God calls us to be the carriers of the gospel that was meant to change the world. That's why, listen, that's why belief is not enough. You can't just believe in something and think that's it. Worship is not enough. Personal morality is not enough. Christian community is not enough. 
Which brings me to, my, to our third question. Our third question, do you see yourself as a collaborator with God? Do you see yourself as a person who works with him to change the world? If so, then you're always looking for opportunities everywhere you go, every day. You're facing the day thinking about how does God want to change the world around me? If you see yourself as a collaborator with God, you're sharpening your practice of kingdom values. You're surrounding yourself with other people who will practice those values as well and sharpen you and you can help them. If you believe you're a collaborator with God, then you will lift people up who are downtrodden, who are in trouble, and you'll break barriers down in the culture, and you'll demonstrate the extravagant love of God. And so think about this, what if, what if this could happen? What, what if, with renewed commitment, each of us would embrace the good news, the whole gospel, and demonstrate it? If each of us, what if each of us said to God, what if each of us said, I wanna change the world with you? I wanna change the world with you. Listen, listen, there are 1.3 million people in Travis and Hayes County. 1.3 million people in Travis and Hayes County. 608,000 of them say that they are Christians. <laughs> Immediately you're starting to think, wait, there's something wrong with those numbers. What could happen? Have we changed our counties with half the people espousing a belief in God? No, the problem is ushering in God's kingdom instead of just believing something or having an opinion about something. 608,000 people here in Travis County, actually, what, what would happen if we embraced that? Could we transform our counties? Let me bring it a little closer to home. Easter Sunday, here at One Chapel, we had 1,800 people across three campuses, three communities. 1,800 people came to seven, one of our seven services on Easter. What if 1,800 people took their faith to the next level? What if, what if 1,800 people said yes to God and said, okay, I want to change the city that I live in? What might God do? What would that look like? What if? 2,000 years ago, the world was changed forever by just 12 people. It can happen again. Here's what William Booth, brilliant Methodist British preacher, he founded the Salvation Army. You might have heard of it. Here's what he said back in the 1800s. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstance in the march to publish his mercy to the world. I've been saying over the last several weeks that this is a journey. The last thing I want to do as we talk about these things is try to 
get too heavy on the shoulds. You know the shoulds? I tend to have a case of the shoulds. I should do this, I should do that, you should do. If, if all this is, if all going through this stuff is just me convincing you and trying to guilt you into stuff, it's not gonna work. That's not what we're talking about. That's not even the premise of the messages we're speaking about. What we're talking about is letting God open our eyes, letting God open our hearts, letting God illuminate our lives so that we glow in the world that we live in already. That we're attentive, that we're willing to imagine, we're willing to say, what if, like Desmond Doss said, what if I could scale this cliff and start dropping men down to be rescued? What if I would do it? God, what do you want me to do? I want you to be filled with his life, not filled with regret. I want you to be filled with his life, not with a list of do's and don'ts. I want you to be filled with him. So close your eyes and bow your heads, and we've asked three questions, and I want you to listen to what God wants to say to you for the answer to those questions. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you to answer in the affirmative, I'm gonna be willing to follow Jesus and I'm gonna be willing to take up his paradigm, his purpose? What does it mean to be attentive to the world around you and to be willing to see it as God sees it? What, is it, what does it look like? See, we're gonna to come to the Lord's table. We're gonna to come to the table that Jesus himself set and it represents the work of Christ because he was willing to say yes. He came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to his father, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He struggled to say yes, but he gave it all. He gave it all on the cross. He went to the cross, and that's what this table represents. It represents a man who gave everything, and when you come to it, what I want you to do is be willing to give everything. Right here. When you come to this table, I want you to be willing to say, okay, Jesus, I surrender it all as you did. And then, receive. <laughs> Take the bread, which represents his broken body, and the healing that he has for you. Dip it in the cup, which represents his blood and the forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. And receive life, a different way of looking at life, a life that is filled with him. Father, we come to this table, we come to this moment, we ask you to just speak to us. We ask you to, to lead us and guide us. Would you, would you show us the parts of our lives that we need to relinquish control and we need to let go and let you have. We need to open our eyes and see the world the way you see it. We need to listen to the cries of the people around us and, and realize that you have the power that can change their lives. We thank you for this and we receive your work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.